Our first speaker today is Dr. Dao Nguyen. Dr. Nguyen is Associate Professor of Medicine at McGill University, Clinician Scientist at the Research Institute of the McGill University Health Center, Physician in the Division of Respirology at the McGill University Health Center, and Founding Director of the McGill Anti Antimicrobial Resistance Center. Her research program is focused on the pathogenesis of cystic fibrosis lung infections and mechanisms of antibiotic tolerance and host pathogen interactions of Pseudomonas aeruginosa. She is a renowned speaker on the topic, is widely published and has received numerous prestigious career awards. Please give a virtual warm welcome to Dr. Nguyen who will present CF airway infections to treat or not to treat, why and how. Welcome. Thank you so much. It is my great pleasure to be here with you this morning. So I'm going to talk to you about airway infections. And uh, as uh, mentioned, I'm a clinician scientist and I'm a researcher. I do microbiology research on CF infections. So hopefully I'll give you a perspective that both um, has some clinical relevance in the clinic, but bridging into uh, some of the uh, insights that um, colleagues in the research field um, has brought. Um, just a few disclosures, um, none of which are directly relevant to the uh, work that I'm going to present to you today. So what I hope to cover is one, just a little bit of an overview of the pathogenesis of um, CF infections, particularly overlooking the epidemiology of the major known CF pathogens. Um, give you a sense of what currently the conventional approach to diagnosis and management of these infections are, but also particularly highlight to you what the challenges are, the limitations, and some emergent concepts which hopefully will um, bring to, uh, us towards what the, the next steps and future directions in the research and care of CF infections will, are going to be. So a, a very general um, thought, why, uh, why are we uh, exposed to microbes and how do we become susceptible to airway infections? So as you know, you know you're, you're breathing in liters and liters of air every day, and this air is far from sterile. It contains certainly um, particulate matter, toxic aerosols, but also microbes that are aerosolized. And, and COVID has certainly taught us how um, there are there's are microbes that travel in the air, and these include the bacteria. And as you breathe through your mouth and your nose, the upper airway will filter a lot of these particles, and um, through your nasopharynx. Um, and your upper airway, uh, these hopefully will clear some a, a lot of this out. And if there are microbes that still make it down to the lower airway, um, then your um, epithelial layer makes a thin layer of mucus, which traps a lot of the particles, including microbes. And this is the principle of the mucociliary clearance, uh, which you cough up or with the cilia and immune cells, these will clear any potential um, problematic microbe. Now, if you have CF, um, and this is uh, you know, not a surprise to any of you, um, due to the ionic uh, abnormalities uh, inherent to the uh, CFTR dysfunction, the mucus in, in people with CF is particularly thick 
difficult to clear. The mucociliar clearance, meaning all the little hairs along the epithelial layer here doesn't work as well. And so um, the uh, mucus is not cleared effectively by the cough mechanism. And it also tends to trap a lot of the microbes. And these microbes, and I'll hear in my talk, really focus on bacteria, although there are more than just bacteria uh, in the world of microbes. Um, these microbes will thrive in the mucus um, uh, environment of the CF airway. This mucus um, will allow bacteria to grow uh, because of uh, um, some abnormality in the pH, the host defenses, so molecules that your body makes in that to kill bacteria do not work as well. Immune cells in this particular CF environment also do not work nearly as well. And on top of that, what uh, all of you know very well, which is the cough mechanism and the ability to clear any infected mucus is also highly impaired. Something to remember is that when I will talk to you about the CF airway infection, um, the, these infections are relatively different from what you might hear about the you know, um, non-CF people having pneumonia, uh, which um, are air, uh, lung infections, but infections in the CF airway are typically in the mucus along the airway and typically do not invade the tissue, hence often the referral to airway infections. And the classical view of why these infections are um, problematic in the course of lung disease is that there, it triggers a vicious cycle of infection, triggering the uh, host uh, lung environment to be very inflamed, causing lung inflammation, which then further uh, cause lung damage and obstruction. And so this goes around. The CFTR uh, dysfunction itself is already um, uh, causing a lot of mucus plugging and obstruction, leading to infection. And the and further infection just accelerates this cycle uh, with more and more lung damage. So for decades now, it has been um, common practice uh, and recognized that lung infection, airway infection and CF are problematic. And therefore, part of routine care multiple times a year, patients will, un will give a sample of a sputum or throat swab or very rarely, but occasionally a uh, lung lavage by bronchoscopy in order to diagnose infection. And um, the, uh, the practice has barely changed over the last few decades, where uh, sputum is sent to the clinical microbiology lab. The secretions are, uh, through standard protocol, cultured on selective media. So you're seeing here somebody with auger plates, the secretions are spread out. And then um, after anywhere from a day to three days, bacteria will start growing on these um, agarose plates. And these are bacterial colonies. Uh, typically, a given patient uh, will have stacks and stacks of these uh, media because every single media will allow to preferentially look for certain types of pathogens. Um, and these pathogens are then identified by either standard biochemical methods or more recently by mass spectrometry methods, which will tell the clinical lab and your um, clinician uh, what type of pathogen um, are uh, present in this, the respiratory secretions. And then the main um, pathogens that are identified are then further tested for in vitro antibiotic susceptibility. So this is an example where each strip um, contains an antibiotic, and then um, the clinical lab is looking for whether or not a given pathogen strain is resistant or susceptible to an antibiotic. And this hopefully will guide clinicians in the choices of 
of antibiotics they may choose. And the whole process here will take up to seven days. So this is really kind of the standard workflow, um, which has led to the recognition that there are a number of um, very prevalent uh, bacterial pathogens that colonize and, in, uh, and then subsequently cause chronic infection in people with CF. So this is a, uh, an example of some of the latest uh, registry data in, from the US uh, uh, CF registry about what the CF microbiology uh, in classical pathogens looks like across the age range. So here in each color, you have a different pathogen, and you'll recognize here um, some uh, very uh, widely known ones, such as Pseudomonas aeruginosa, MRSA. And as you can see, as, uh, pe uh, as people with CF are of different age, the profile um, tends to change. Uh, in children, the green line here, the most common pathogen that is identified is Staph aureus. Um, and then as you head into adulthood, uh, typically by the, the time the patients are in the 18 to 25 or 30 years old, uh, the prevalence of Pseudomonas starts uh, uh, overtaking that of Staph aureus. And in adulthood, Pseudomonas is the most prevalent organism uh, pathogen identified um, among CF patients. So this is, uh, these are curves that all of the clinicians have seen year in, year after, and in fact, also probably patients in terms of what is the picture of CF microbiology. So I'm just going to run through with you um, a few of the most uh, prevalent uh, pathogens and tell you a little bit about uh, their epidemiology. So we'll start with Pseudomonas, which is the most uh, prevalent organism in adult uh, people with CF, and one of the most targeted um, uh, organism with regards to antibacterial therapy to this day. So Pseudomonas aeruginosa is a gram-negative bacteria, and what you see here is as people age, it becomes more and more prevalent, uh, upwards of 70% in certain cohorts of patients, and Pseudomonas is also notorious for uh, having a, a propensity to be multidrug resistant, which uh, obviously complicates a lot the um, antibiotic um, treatment regimen. And so here, a same thing as with the general prevalence, as people get older, you see that the prevalence of these multidrug resistance can rise upwards of 20%. The natural history of Pseudomonas is one that has been very well studied for decades now. And what you see here is a kind of a prototypical natural history where in the early ages, patients will be um, colonized intermittently with different clones of um, Pseudomonas, which are typically acquired from the environment. So it is noteworthy to say that Pseudomonas is really everywhere in your environment, in water pipes, in the soil. It lives outside in the natural and in the hospital environment, and we are all exposed to it. And unfortunately, people with CF have, for the reasons I've outlined earlier, vulnerabilities that make them um, colonize and then subsequently um, chronically infected. In this early stage of infection, um, it is still possible through various um, 
regimens of what we'll call eradication therapy uh, be uh, cleared. But as patients um, get older, there is a transition, and this is not a one-time thing, but there, uh, but there is a, a, at some point um, a transition to chronic infection defined by the fact that now um, sputum cultures will consistently um, uh, have pseudomonas. And uh, once the pseudomonas has established itself as a chronic infection, it is pretty much impossible to eradicate with antimicrobial therapy. And what we see in terms of the features of the strains that are um, present in chronic infection, they start adapting to the host. And this is when you start hearing about things like mucoid and, um, and other um, uh, uh, features such as being drug resistant or a number of other features, which I won't go into, but that we, um, through studies in the lab, uh, understand that they are promoting the survival as well as the evasion, uh, the survival of the bacteria, as well as the evasion um, from host defenses and antibiotic treatment. So, um, uh, we know that as patients develop chronic infection, um, poor, thing, poor outcomes result from that. Um, this is an example from an old study you know, several decades ago where if patients did not have pseudomonas, their survival was, were the best. And if they had pseudomonas but was not mucoid, it was a little bit less good, but not as bad as if you were uh, infected with a mucoid pseudomonas. And having pseudomonas infection uh, is associated with worse uh, clinical outcomes, such as um, lower growth and weight, as well as increased mortality. And this has thus led to the fact that pseudomonas has been a major target of multiple types of therapy um, outlined here, such as eradication therapy early on, uh, chronic suppressive therapy, as well as therapy during exacerbations. And I'm going to go into this a little bit um, later on. The second organism that I want to mention is Staphylococcus aureus, and um, this is the most common organism uh, pathogen uh, identified in young patients, and they, it remains still very prevalent even in, in adults. And um, Staph aureus is a very common colonizer of the skin and the nose, even in um, patients uh, without CF. So in the normal population, upwards of a quarter to a third of patients may carry Staph aureus on themselves. And there's also been evidence that um, this can be transmitted from person to person. And therefore, uh, when we deal with drug-resistant Staph aureus, and this is MRSA, MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph Aureus, this can be a problem and also a problem with regards to infection control. Um, with um, the colonization and chronic infection of Staph aureus, which um, you can see here in the red line, um, this, can, this does become somewhat more prevalent in the late childhood and early adulthood. And there is a slight increase in um, the uh, lung function decline, as well as the survival, leading um, clinicians to attempt to eradicate carriage and colonization of uh, MRSA. Another um, infamous uh, CF pathogen are of those members of the Burkholderia cepacea, 
complex. And so here, if you look at the bottom line, it's the yellow line here. Thankfully, now in 2022, or actually here 2019 to be exact, the prevalence is really quite low. Um, it was not the case in certain centers um, several decades ago, but the um, because of much stricter infection control and social practices, the uh, Burkholderia has become much less um, prevalent. This complex, it consists of um, 20 different species, which are not all created equal. The, the, the ones that are the worst um, uh, members are those uh, of the Cenocepatia complex, uh, sorry, Cenocepatia species, and they, as well as a few other cousins, um, which used to, which cause the Cepatia syndrome. Uh, which now, thankfully, again, is relatively uncommon, but was associated uh, with outbreaks that uh, decades ago um, that, uh, associated with very high mortality and a very acute syndrome of necrotizing pneumonia and fever, etc. And so here, if you look at the mortality of different Burkholderia species, some of them are relatively benign and don't seem to really change the course of, of uh, long-term outcomes, whereas others are. And therefore, um, the decision to do to um, try to treat Burkholderia really depends on the specific um, species and the, what might be the impact on uh, longer term survival. Now I'm going to head to some of the more um, esoteric names, but some that nonetheless you may have come across. Stenotrophomonas maltophilia here. So in red, um, this is a um, organism that has increasing prevalence, uh, particularly in the children, but it, it remains nonetheless a relatively um, uncommon uh, emergent pathogen. Um, it's uh, troublesome nature is that it is highly intrinsically resistant to many antibiotics. So if this was an organism that needed treatment, um, the choices are relatively limited. Does it matter to whether one has um, stenotrophomonas maltophilia? If it's only there once in a while, so intermittently, it does not seem to, to have a big impact on survival, as you can see in the curve here. However, in chronic, uh, if you are chronically infected with it over the very long term, years, that is, there has been some um, modest increased risk of increased pulmonary exacerbation, as well as mortality. So this um, does bring um, some patients into um, a, a situation where physicians will need to treat and target specifically stenotrophomonas. Finally, the last one that is commonly reported, uh, is reported but is not particularly prevalent, um, is Acromobacter xylosedans. And here again, we're talking about in the less than 10% prevalence and one that primarily occurs in adults. Um, as is seen with many um, opportunistic pathogens in CF, this is another environmental organism and um, one where if you are only intermittently uh, in the, uh, found to have uh, a chromobacter, there does not seem to be a major impact on your overall survival. However, if it is found consistently, there is over, uh, over a long, long period of time, a slow uh, acceleration in lung function decline, as well as an increased risk of death. But uh, if you notice here, we're talking about very long-term uh, uh, effect. So, so that was a world uh, win kind of overview of what are some of the 
classical pathogens um, that we find in, uh, from the clinical micro lab and how, how are they typically treated. So there are three types of antimicrobial therapy um, that we consider. One is uh, eradication therapy. And um, for that, it, it, it's, it is what it sounds like. It is therapy uh, initiated at a very early stage with the hope that by um, using some sort of antibiotic regimen that this will prevent the transition into chronic stage. So this is often done at the first sign of a positive culture. And the, the literature and the recommendation right now is that in, in many centers will use eradication therapy um, to uh, target Pseudomonas aeruginosa. There are um, several regimens that are available um, that are um, not uh, clearly different from each other in terms of efficacy. So there are uh, different centers use a combination of oral or inhaled or uh, intravenous antibiotics. And what it has been shown is that this improves the rates of eradication of pseudomonas compared to not having any treatment whatsoever. So this can extend the period during which a patient is pseudomonas free. Um, the other um, uh, organism that is targeted in some places is the um, colonization of MRSA. And um, because MRSA uh, can be found not just in the respiratory secretions, but the nasal uh, passages as well as the skin, these eradication uh, regimens uh, are typically a, a combination of oral, topical, and, and uh, antibiotics as well as antiseptics, and, um, uh, and as well as possibly some environmental decontamination if um, the, there's a, a common source of reinfection. Uh, and with regards to the other organisms, um, there is currently no data nor any recommendation um, that uh, would uh, suggest that we should be eradicating the other ones, partly because I think that the long-term um, both efficacy but impact of simply having intermittent infection is less well established. So what are the, some of the challenges in eradicating CF infection? I mean, I, I just gave you sort of what is the, the, the standard practice. Well, um, th there are numerous um, challenges. First of all, do we even know which microbes are really causing problem, meaning fueling the accelerated lung function decline and lung damage that occurs um, over the course of, of years of CF? Well, the first um, uh, challenge is that although I've given you a very simplistic picture of one or two pathogen, we know that the respiratory secretions and the CF infections are polymicrobial. Lots and lots of different microbes, which I'll describe to you. And the role of certain microbes in causing disease is not entirely clear. And uh, on their own or how they interact with each other as a community. We also know that many CF children who have significant lung disease may not have identifiable pathogens, pathogens in the way that I've just defined, the clinical lab classically defines them. And the way that the conventional cultures, which I've just uh, outlined with the plates and the antibiotic susceptibility testing, can miss important microbes that contribute to disease. So what is the data? And here I'm just really giving you a glimpse of a, a tremendous amount of work um, of years uh, by the CF microbiology community. 
So here, this is um, just looking at the culture-based. Uh, so this is the same data um, that I've shown you before, but pictured a little bit differently uh, by culture-based of the major pathogens. And, and what you can see here is that you have Pseudomonas in green up top, staph in the middle, but even with a classical pathogen, these pathogens can coexist. So you have a whole group here that has both Staph aureus and Pseudomonas. And this is just the two um, bacteria that are um, cultured by a conventional lab. If you start using uh, more advanced research-based uh, molecular methods, whether they be um, uh, metagenomic or various types of sequencing method or molecular method, or if you simply use a much more elaborate culture-based um, method to be able to grow a larger spectrum of microbes, what you can see here is some colleagues, and this is one paper which has very colorful graphs, which is why I'm showing to you, they've cultured um, extensively a CF sputum. And the numbers here, what you can see is 40, 60, 70. This is the number of different microbes that are recovered in a given sample. Every single patient have dozens and dozens of different types of bacteria. And you can see here, based on the color, how diverse they are. And if we, um, so many of them can be cultured, and then some of them are unculturable, but we can detect them by um, genetic sequencing uh, methods. So clearly, the CF microbial community is very diverse. And it is diverse, but in a way where patients are not similar to each other. This is one patient, it's a rainbow of colors. Every color is a, is a type, a, a genus of bacteria. This is another one which is, you know, is dominated by the green bacteria here. So different patients at different stages of disease have different communities and at different stage before and after antibiotic or after certain treatments such as the um, modulator therapy, their communities will also be different. Now, the, the million dollar question is, we know that these microbial communities are diverse. They're different across patients, but is it a cause and an effect? Do we know that some of these, um, are there microbes in there that are really causing the disease or are there just a result of different patients having different um, CF lung environment? Well, there are many um, research uh, insights that hints to the fact that you know, we're probably missing important pathogens, but we actually don't really know what to do about them yet. So this is an example of a study done uh, quite a while ago, but that was elegant because what they looked at, this, this is in a mouse infection, and they infected a mouse with a, um, uh, uh, a bacteria that is commonly found in the mouth. Uh, it's Streptococcus species, species or Prevotella. These are anaerobes. These are not commonly cultured unless you're really looking for them. Uh, for example, under anaerobic condition. And on their own, they found that these um, bacteria were not particularly pathogenic. This, so the mouse here survives very well. Um, but if you combined the two Streptococcus then the mouse um, were not nearly um, as, as um, happy and um, suggesting that um, the combination of multiple organisms might cause more disease than um, we suspect. And some of these organisms may be what are found, quote unquote, in the normal flora. So things that the lab is not uh, clearly identifying as a pathogen. The clinical lab is also typically not able to find unusual variants 
um, that may be more inflammatory or more uh, disease uh, accelerating. So an example of this of colleagues have been looking at are staph aureus that are small colony, they grow really slow. And, and those we in the research study seem to be causing an accelerated in lung function decline. Another example are pseudomonas variants that are um, uh, some genetic variants uh, in a, a very important regulator that may uh, quorum sensing. And so in clinical studies, if a patient has this very particular variant of pseudomonas, it seems like their lung function declines more rapidly. And then in studies that um, we have done a couple of years ago, we also know that uh, patients who have these types of variants have evidence of more inf inflammation in their system. And if we've tested these variants in a mouse model or in cell culture, they're very inflammatory. And so these are types of variants that are not commonly picked up in the clinical lab. So I've here just kind of given you a hint of why, you know, the, 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 the limitations of how we we, what we know about the clinical lab uh, yet about and how this brings challenges. But the next step is even if we knew which microbe to target, it's also very hard to eradicate CF infection. And why is that? Well, there are a multitude of reasons uh, for which CF infections in particular are difficult to eradicate. We know that the host is abnormal with abnormal mucociliary clearance and the host defenses at the mucosal layer as well as the immune cells are not working completely um, uh, optimally. But the bacteria in the CF um, secretion environment is also uh, primed to not be as sensitive to antibiotic because they're growing as biofilms. So biofilms are these aggregates that uh, of bacteria that become sheltered from antibiotics. Um, bacteria also adapt to the CF lung environment in ways in which they're better at surviving all sorts of insults. Um, and the fact that um, the infections are polymicrobial. So, you know, if you have lots of different microbes, do you really uh, have the ability to find just the right antibiotic that will target all of these different uh, uh, microbes if we knew um, exactly which one they can cause. Different bacteria also have different types of factors that cause more damage to the lung environment. And finally, if they've developed antibiotic resistance, then antibiotics may not work as well as um, uh, they should. So um, here, you know, the right now, the two eradication protocols that we use against Pseudomonas and MRSA um, are part of the standard of care, but they don't have as much success as we would like them to be. We know that they work uh, you know, quite well in young patients at the very first sign of infection, but as you get older and, and then and chronic infection becomes more chronic, these eradication regimens are not as effective. Um, numerous regimens um, may have need to be used. And importantly, although the eradication by culture results may be successful in terms of the sputum not showing a culture uh, at three months or six months, we don't know yet what the long-term benefits um, uh, are. We haven't been able to demonstrate that this um, really will have an impact, for example, in mortality or fewer um, or, um, uh, pulmonary exacerbations.
And there's also always the pro the, the balancing act of the more antibiotic you use, the more you promote the rise of drug resistance. And so not to overdo it if the benefit of using a lot of antibiotics uh, for these eradication is not as well established. So now I'm gonna just move on to then what the approach of chronic treatment is. And for this, really the only suppressive treatment is targeting Pseudomonas aeruginosa. With this, um, we have a, a variety of different inhaled uh, antibiotics uh, of which they have been demonstrated to be able to reduce the bacterial density of Pseudomonas and to improve the lung function and survival uh, of uh, patients. And so this is very well established. And there's also chronic um, uh, maintenance of zithromycin, which is used not actually for its um, anti-pseudomonal activity because it does not have any, but it has um, anti-inflammatory and anti-virulence effect, which are believed to perhaps be beneficial. And this has been demonstrated to improve the long-term lung function and to reduce the rates of exacerbation. Here, I'm just going to mention, but not really dwell into it because I probably need a whole nother hour to talk to you about this because it's such a complex issue about non-tuberculous mycobacteria. This was not in the main chart at the beginning, but it is an emergent and very and, and kind of a problematic infection. And uh, when it is uh, well, uh, when it is um, established as a chronic infection that is causing um, symptoms, um, and then there are, uh, and, and not just colonization, then there are um, multiple types of drug regimens uh, that are used um, and requiring uh, upwards of a year and a half and sometimes chronically with very highly variable success in suppressing or attempting to eradicate mycobacterial infections, such as mycobacterium avium and mycobacterium abscessus. Now, what are the, some of the challenges in managing chronic infection, CF infection? Well, first of all, we go back to the first problem, which microbes are really causing the problem and which ones should be targeted? And if we're gonna target them, well, unfortunately, the standard antibiotic susceptibility assays to date seem to be relatively poor predictors of how uh, efficacious the antibiotic uh, regimen will be. It's the best that we've got, and uh, it's better than nothing, but um, it's not as good as we'd like. And we don't have yet a clear um, alternative um, we do know that bacterial density you know, does not correlate particularly well with clinical outcomes. And um, uh, if, that, if so, then, and we can't eradicate a CF infections, then what are some of the meaningful endpoints that really need, we need to look at when we start doing uh, these studies? And even the, what, the treatments that are effective um, in terms of improving lung function and exacerbation, the mechanisms by which they are effective are often when we really studying them in greater detail are probably multiple or perhaps more complex than we think that they are. So now I'm gonna move on to um, the treatment of pulmonary exacerbation. So these are clinically meaningful events, essentially when patients develop a worsening of their symptoms leading to a change of um, uh, treatment and uh, typically these are increase in cough, sputum, sometimes fever, shortness of breath, and a reduction in lung function. And we know that these are quite common events uh, with uh, almost half of the patients, uh, adult patients experiencing at least one or more 
uh, exacerbation a year. And uh, the ones that are having frequent exacerbation is about half of them, two and more. And as you can imagine, this is a big burden of care as often patients require to be hospitalized or at least to require home intravenous um, therapy for weeks at end. The current conventional approach to this treatment is highly empiric. Um, so it is uh, not based on very good clinical trial data because we don't have those data. It, the, the perspective is that it is still primarily pathogen-based, and it is guided by both what empiric clinical response as well as what the lab is able to tell us with regards to the antibiotic susceptibility testing. The major pathogens that are typically targeted during exacerbations are Pseudomonas, Burkholderia, and Stenotrophomonas. And uh, without going into the, the various regimens, what you can see here is that these are all combinations of more than uh, two, um, two or more antibiotics, often requiring intravenous antibiotics. So these are, are relatively burdensome treatments with the um, uh, rationale that in the setting of an acute deterioration, if um, patients are not treated with such antibiotics, then they, they, one is their symptoms is worse and the lung function decline uh, really does not uh, sort of, uh, it, uh, it's difficult to recover that lung function uh, in the absence of some sort of treatment. But there are many challenges in treating those exacerbations. First of all, there is no standard definition of what consists of an, a pulmonary exacerbation. Um, nor are there very specific diagnostic tests. Right now, the gold standard that we have are the symptoms that patients report and then the subjective decision of the physician that the constellation of symptoms as well as their lung function test uh, is consistent with the pulmonary exacerbations. But it is probably a mixed bag of multiple different types of syndromes that are caused by things that are um, relatively poorly understood. Uh, we also, you know, struggle a lot with knowing which microbes should be targeted within antimicrobials during an exacerbation, given that the secretions of patients typically will have often more than one organism. And again, in the treatment of exacerbation, the antibiotic susceptibility testing do not perf perform particularly well in predicting how well patients will respond. So what do we know about exacerbations then? Well, we know a lot of the things that they're not. We know that it's not because there is a bloom, an increased density of bacteria. We know that it has not been a bloom of a particular pathogen such as Pseudomonas. It is typically not because of an acquisition of a new clone of, this, of Pseudomonas. And people have not been able to identify a clear signature neither about how the community, either diversity or composition has changed. And so right now, I would say that the, the, the field is still very much as a bind about what exactly is a pulmonary exacerbation and what triggers them. And here, these are a number of the hypotheses. Are they triggered by viral infection? Are there some changes in the bacteria community that are still unrecognized based on the technology we have now? Is there some sort of dysregulated inflammation um, that uh, is triggered by yet uh, unknown mechanism? Is there simply more mucus obstruction or maybe non-compliance that leads to more um, mucus plugging? Or perhaps there are some environmental triggers, pollution, smoking, other irritants that might be triggering this. 
These are all questions that are left un, uh, uh, with no clear answer to this. So where next? Well, I think that you know the the the, the CFTR modulators have brought in a kind of a game changer to many, not all, but many patients. Uh, but we are um, uh, recognizing that even in the advent of CFTR modulator therapy, infections are not going away completely, and um, this it remains a, a problem where patients are not eradicating their infections. So how to manage them is still important. Um, the, in patients that are not benefiting from CFTR uh, modulator therapy, chronic infection still has a lot of unanswered question. We are facing the kind of scary uh, thought of what happens when there is increasing antimicrobial resistance and the pipeline of antibiotics um, are, uh, is, is not uh, great right now of new compounds coming down the pipeline. We also are asking a lot of questions about what are about emerging infections, the weird and bizarre bugs that come out of culture or of sequencing uh, results that we don't even know what exactly they are. And, and, and uh, as we treat uh, Pseudomonas uh, or mycobacteria with a lot of antibiotics, there are some um, kind of uh, stranger and less known organisms that uh, emerge and what are their implications. And finally, we're thinking a lot about what are some novel therapies um, that uh, we should be thinking about. And um, here I, I just have a little cartoon about, uh, you know, one of the, the recent initiative by the CF Foundation to really kind of put a, a, a light on, a inf uh, on infections, uh, namely the Infection Research Initiative, which started uh, back at four years ago, and trying to um, uh, uh, improve uh, the, the, the knowledge as well as come up with new um, treatments. And I'm just giving you here a snapshot of what the pipeline currently through the CFF is in terms of new antimicrobial or anti-infective therapy um, that are uh, either have been approved recently or are currently under investigation at various levels of uh, clinical trials. So with that, I think that uh, my time is up and I will be happy to um, look at the questions. Um, I see a lot of different questions. That was a fascinating presentation and we apologize that you could literally be here all day long. Yes. <laughs> talking about each specific pathogen. And as you can see, there are so many questions in the chat box. So just to um, not to put you terribly on the spot before I ask the first question, maybe we could do a little follow-up after the conference where we address these questions, which we are saving. I would love to, just so that people can get them answered. So there were a lot of questions about, obviously, Trikafta and the shift and, you know, are people having um, less sputum so that, you know, they're not picking up pathogens possibly, are the results now becoming skewed? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that would be one of the first things. And has it changed what people are seeing in terms of their cultures? Yes. So I would say that most of the knowledge that we have right now um, is actually... Um, uh, based on Ivacaftor, because it just has been around longer, and therefore some of the, the, the longitudinal follow-up is available. But having said that, with Trikafta, there are some early uh, uh, results that are coming out. And what 
we have seen uh, is that in patients that are young and have not been, um, let's say, uh, infected with pseudomonas, it, is, it seems like the, the time to the first culture of, the, of a pseudomonas is delayed. And so um, th that seems to be uh, you know, certainly promising. Uh, in terms of the exacerbation, clearly there are much, much fewer exacerbations and therefore the need to act on some of the, this microbiology is less. Now with that though, there is, uh, as you mentioned, perhaps a bias uh, in terms of not being able to culture them nearly as well because you know, sputum is just not available and put on top of that COVID. Um, you know, if you look at what the CF Foundation registry, uh, you know, 2020, 2020, uh, and the data in 2021 is not available yet, but, you know, there, there's a huge drop in, in clinic visits. And so patients are not even uh, able to see their providers to give samples. So it is true that the picture that we're going to have is, is biased by both those things. Having said that, there have been a, a, a one or two studies I'm aware of where investigators on a research basis have gone to doing bronchoscopies or used much more aggressive method to try to elicit that culture that would not spontaneously be available. And so far, what we see is that, but from the Iva Kaftor data, is that there seems to be a honeymoon period where there is certainly a drop in bacterial density, things look you know more normalized over a year or two, but then that things kind of like creep back up. And, um, and we don't know why yet. Is it just like an effect waning or bacteria kind of, they're, they're not going away, but they're just adapting and finding their way around. The other thing is that, you know, the, the, the chronic uh, culprits like pseudomonas are not going away completely. They may not, we they may not find them in the sputum anymore because there's so little sputum, but if you go in and you really look, look deep, um, they're still there kind of hiding away. So we shouldn't forget them. Um, we had a lot of questions about MRSA eradication protocols, whether you yeah. agree with that, um, mm -hmm. find them effective. Somebody who's actually a healthcare professional who said, we did it for my son, but we never, I've never seen a doctor order this in, in my healthcare center. Yes. So I think, well, I, I'll start by the, 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 the caveat that I am not an MRSA uh, expert, and it, it is um, highly debatable um, how effective it is. Um, and and, and I, I, what I would say is that there are three factors that come um, into the decision of a given center or a given um, physician to decide whether or not to recommend it or not. One is the prevalence of MRSA. Some centers have a lot of MRSA that have caused a lot of problems, whereas others do not. And so th there is that like um, that center specific experience. The second is that if you look at the data, how much of a problem does MRSA cause? It's not clear cut. Uh, you know, uh, on average, the, the, uh, on a group level, this, the, the, the impact is relatively small, but you, if you speak to physicians, you, they will say some patients seem to like all they've got is MRSA and it is the only pathogen that seemed that I can identify causing problem. This it's got to be it. And so, on an individual level, there is uh, some patients that um, that um, probably uh, uh, are affected more. 
Now, how efficacious they are, this is the trouble, is that I think some centers, uh, so, so the, the regimen is very complex. You know, there's ointments and antibiotics and, you know, uh, and decontamination and rinses. And um, not all centers uh, are as ag aggressive about it than as others. And some there from their experience will say, you know, we've tried it and it never works and we've given up. And others will, you know, I don't know what the magic touch is, but they will say, oh, you know, we've actually had some success, so we'll use it. We have questions about pseudomonas uh, for people post-transplant. How common is pseudomonas post-transplant was one question. And then related, someone else who doesn't have it in her lungs anymore, but very pesky in the sinuses. Well, I think that the, the comment of the second person answers a little bit the first question, which is, so in terms of the actual prevalence, I'll be, I do not have any numbers, uh, and I suspect that it is very center-specific in terms of what the prevalence of pseudomonas uh, is in post-transplant. Now, um, I know that it does come back, I mean, pseudomonas or Burkholderia or some of these other colonizers. Um, the uh, because so um, there are other reservoirs that are above the new lungs and namely the sinuses that can harbor um, can you know uh, the pseudomonas or a number of these other pathogens and uh, I know that different centers have different types of approaches as to how to try to debulk or decolonize pre-transplant including the consideration of sinus curatage or surgeries or antibiotic treatments because we know that post-surgery um, if there are still um, bacteria in the sinuses, and you know this is a direct conduit from upper airway going to the lower airway, um, even though your lung now has normal mucociliary clearance, uh, there it, it, the patients are on immunosuppressive agents, and um, there there um, there is a continuous there can be a continuous exposure, which in some cases will lead to colonization in the new lung. So. Um, I don't know exactly the numbers, but certainly upper airway and sinus um, colonization um, is a, a, a particular concern. And then there were a lot of questions about um, fungal infections, which I know are different from bacterial pathogens. Um, so I assume that could be a whole other talk to address that because they're exactly. going up on the chart because they're Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. That, that could be a whole nother talk with even more questions. Um, and, and as a, uh, as a uh, so I think a sign of, of how many um, unanswered question, uh, fungal infections was one of the priorities of this East, uh, infection research initiative that the CF Foundation launched in terms of unmet needs is just what do we know about fungal infections and, and what do we do about them? And do they know anything? What is the trigger that turns an infection from you know, intermittent to its, its switch to colonization? Yeah. Is there any information on that? Well, we have a lot of um, theory that comes from lab-based in vitro models. Um, so things like the ability of bacteria to grow in a biofilm. You know, so if you put bacteria in the sticky, very viscous CF mucus, it allows bacteria to start 
growing these little balls and these balls then now you know are very hard to clear by the host immune system and by antibiotics that's one kind of mechanism um, other mechanisms when for example pseudomonas becomes mucoid um, that mucoid also it's part of its transition to uh, chronicity so there's quite a few of these bacterial shifts that we have been able to identify in the lab that we extrapolate as probably being important. But there is a bit of a, a, a hand-waving here gap because you know, we don't have in the model, we don't have a mouse model or a pig model that allows us to really look at that transition from if you were infected from day one, when does it become chronic? So I think that that's a gap in terms of you know, the pathogenesis. Why does an intermittent infection become chronic? Um, I think that it's still based on, on a lot of basic science research, but I think some of it we're able to recover in, in patient samples, like people have been able to visualize biofilms in sputum of, of patients. We know that isolates that come out of patients have all these characteristics. So I think that we have a pretty good idea, but it's not clear, clear cut. Well, sadly, we are out of time, in fact, slightly over. Yep. So Dr. Nguyen, I wanna thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. And I, I truly do hope we can connect maybe next week after the yep. conference and address all these other unanswered questions. You are such a wealth of information. We are hungry for more. So I thank you so much. And yep. for everybody who's here, uh, the next presentation coming up is Understanding GI Cancers and CF. So you can go back to the auditorium and click on the next session. And I will see you there. Dr. Nguyen, it's a gift. Thank you so much. My utmost pleasure. It's my honor. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.